Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. All right, let's kick this thing off. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. I'm here with my lovely co-host, Matt Offenbacher, and a special guest, Mr. Andrew Hewitt. Andrew, welcome to the team. And, and uh, have you ever been on a, on a podcast before? I always like to, to ask the question. No, as a matter of fact, this is my first time. First time. Uh, is it as scary as riding your bike for the first time? Maybe more. <laughs> well, if you fall, you won't hurt yourself. But uh, nonetheless, Matt, how are you doing this lovely day? You know, I'm doing okay. It's, it's another day in the oil field. We'll put it that way. That's right. That's right. And uh, Andrew is our young phenom here. He's uh, works partly. Well, Matt, or, uh, Andrew, I'll let you go ahead. Um, if you don't mind, just give a little bit of background. Uh, tell the audience um, your role here within AES. Uh, we've brought you on. Um, you've been uh, part, uh, you know, partly involved with a lot of the AEDE papers that we've been, and especially the one we're going to be talking about today. But before we dive into that, I'd really like uh, for you to tell the audience a little bit about your background and, and how you ended up here with AES. So I currently work in the tech services department at AES uh, that is involved with marketing and product development. Uh, I started out in West Texas working at our Kermit mud plant and warehouse facility, which has grown significantly since I've been there. Right. But, uh, and before that, though, you'd graduated from LSU, is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. I have a Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering. Excellent. Excellent. So, uh, you know, what, when you told your parents that you were going to play in the mud and make money doing it, were they excited for that? I think they were confused. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. But uh, anyway, so you, so you came on with AES, you, you worked out uh, in West Texas um, in the field. And tell us a little bit about your experience. What was it? it was it what you expected and what were some of the uh, sort of takeaways from having that experience in the field? Because I think that's really neat that, you, you know, right out of college, you went and, and took the opportunity to go work in the field, get your hands dirty and really see it and put your hands on, on the elements of drilling fluids. So I started by shadowing uh, mud engineers in South Texas, uh, just north of Corpus, um, after about five months, I broke out on the rig that I had trained on. Um, soon after, well, after that, moved out to West Texas to work in the Permian. And uh, last year in June, I had the opportunity to transfer to our Houston office, uh, which is where I am now. Excellent, excellent. And uh, how's, uh, do you prefer the office compared to the field? I enjoy both. Yeah. That's a good answer. And he still gets to, we still get plenty of opportunities. You know, we do a lot of field trials. There's a lot of new technology going out. So uh, he doesn't get too far away from the field. Is that right, Andrew? I make it out uh, every couple of months. Nice. For well, sure. It, it's good to, to have that. And especially someone like yourself who's gone through the engineering, um, you know, in, in the academic side of it, to have that, that analytics mindset and engineering mindset to be able to deploy that and have those skills put to the field. Cause you know, a lot of mud engineers and even myself started off on the rigs and, you know, we see things through a different lens. And so having 
um, you know, your experience in school and having that engineering mindset, I think adds a lot of value, which is what I, you know, I certainly have enjoyed seeing through the years, us pack on a lot of muscle and I'll credit Matt for building a solid team here within AES. Um, but, uh, you know, moving forward to, to what we'd like to talk about today and Matt, I'll let you talk a little bit about AEDE and our position within that organization and, and how, uh, that ties into what we're talking about today. So this is the second of four papers that we were going to present at the AAD Fluids Conference, which uh, due to COVID-19 was canceled. And so we thought the best opportunity would be for the presenting authors to get to talk a little bit about the paper. Um, we, uh, By the time this podcast is released, we hope that the paper is actually up on the AAD website, which, which they all will be for free. Um, and so if, if you're interested in what you hear, you could go ahead and... Uh, you know, have a read and, and um, maybe learn a little bit more about uh, what we've been working on. Uh, so that's that's sort of the background. And, and Andrew was going to be the presenting author of, um, I'll go ahead and read the long title. We tried to shorten it, just didn't work. But um, the paper AADE 20-FTCE-021, New Treatment Reduces Direct Emulsion Drilling Fluid Costs by Recycling System Components, Minimizing Dilution. Um, and so, uh, Andrew, Andrew's the presenting author. I, I contributed as a, as a co-author, um, a guy named Mike Heverly who, uh, with our solids control group and DeAndre Palmer, who does a lot of our, uh, analytical, uh, uh, analytical services and testing. Um, he contributed some of the, the test data in the paper as well. So that's the whole story. Excellent. And uh, for all the listeners out there, I encourage you, this is actually a great supplement to uh, a direct emulsion podcast episode that we did. And I don't recall the number, but uh, certainly this dives into something a little bit deeper, which we can get into. Uh, and, and it'll allow Andrew to to share his experience while writing a paper and sort of some of the findings and, and conclusions that he was able to draw. So Andrew, um, you know, what I think would be good, we can kind of walk through it and, and you can uh, sort of briefly explain some of the, the high level things that we got into uh, followed up with with some really good key takeaways that I think are, are extremely important for the for the audience to to hear about. Being that this system um, has now been deployed and it's a proven technology, but it's neat because we continuously add vial, value by um, you know increasing the efficiency and making you know just creating the mouse trap even better as we go along. But um, yeah, so if you want, let's go ahead, just talk a little bit about the, about the paper in general, and then if you wouldn't mind, start off just kind of the, you know, maybe even some of the history and sort of how we led into writing this kind of paper. Yeah, sure. So uh, this paper specifically is about a new treatment process that was developed to enhance the economics of our direct emulsion drilling fluid. Uh, we are doing that by minimizing the dilution requirements as well as recycling the system components. Um, so I'd like to talk maybe a little bit about the history of a direct emulsion drilling sure. fluid. Um, they, they date back to the middle of the 20th century. Uh, originally, the non-continuous oil phase was an unintended consequence uh, of crude bearing zones or spotting around stuck pipe. Uh, so drilling performance benefits were seen, such as reduced fluid loss, and that led to broader adoption of that technology. Interesting. Okay. And and since then, um, you know, has it been 
it was something, and Matt, you can add to this too, but for a long time, did we get away from it or did the, did the, did the technology kind of shift, uh, depending on trends in the oil industry or how did, what did that look like? I think, you know, it's interesting because you go back and read some of the, the, the papers in like the, the forties, uh, and there people are fairly excited about direct emulsions for whole quality and, and fluid loss control. But I think what happened is some other products kind of swooped in and displaced with the same benefits. Um, and so the cost was still there and you had oil-based muds sort of come into their own and people were like, well, we really like these. Right. Um, and so, you know, tracing back the origins, I guess, um, you know, we've gone from there and then, and then, uh, you know, the eighties onward, I think even folks from the seventies, you know, they, they, they called it milk mud. It, it was people were, people were using it. Um, but typically just to cut the density of a fluid. So it was just have oil dispersed in something else and oil's pretty light. So it makes the fluid lighter. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, we kind of graduate up to what, what this paper is about or, or, I mean, the application is, is pretty broad, but, um, you know, the, the latest and greatest every, everybody out in West Texas and the, the New Mexico, the Permian basin, they're drilling with a saturated salt system cut back with oil where you could drill through a salt section without washing it out um, and yet avoid inducing losses on uh, the Cherry Brushy Canyon formations below. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that it became, it, when it started, it really took off. But, um, Andrew, maybe you can talk about, like, um, you know, where we start out as far as well, water ratios and challenges maintaining the system and, and where the economics question came, in, came into conversation. So typically, uh, the oil water ratio will depend on the mud weight range that you'll need uh, for the well. It's going to be a combination of a saturated sodium chloride brine uh, at saturation. It's 10 pounds per gallon. And then the light phase is going to be your diesel at seven. So whatever combination of the two to arrive at the mud weight that you need. Um, Typically, the oil-water ratio will start out somewhere around 30-70, and then you might see it climb up all the way up to 50-50, depending on how well your solids control equipment is at removing those low-gravity solids. Yeah, and and that's the, you know, that's the catch-all is, I, I think it was sort of interesting that we started out, and and even even if we knew, for example, that we could get, we needed a nine six, we'd start with a nine two or a nine four, knowing that we were going to take in a bunch of solids. And some of that was just we were drilling really fast at surface, what have you. But but like some of the first kind of tweaks and learnings was about optimizing solids control, because your real cost driver in this interval is I've got to keep my weight down so I don't lose this stuff but I've got to make it more expensive. So it's light enough to not go on losses by adding more oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I mean, Andrew, what, what was the highest, uh, oil water ratio? I think you, that you feel like you saw in the field when you were really fighting these things. The highest I've seen is probably 60, 40. Yeah. And believe it or not, you can do that with a direct emulsion, but a lot of these chemicals don't really, they're, they're supposed to have the water in the continuous phase. Um, but they can start doing some weird things once you push past that. Um, so if, if you think about just the economics of how much oil you're carrying, these fluids are starting to get expensive, like an oil-based mud, right? Um, 
So Andrew, talk, let's talk a little bit about the economics behind the system and, and how that directly impacts the decision being made by the operators. So the main cost factor for this direct emulsion system is the base oil addition. When you're drilling and accumulating low gravity solids, it's going to require more and more diesel to combat, combat that rising mud weight. And then with those diesel additions, you'll have to add more and more additives, uh, chemical products. So the cost will grow. And this was an attempt to just lower overall cost to the operator. Makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about the, like conceptually where, um, how certain treatments uh, are required in order to actually make this happen with regards to, cause you know, we talked about really a lot of the driving force behind here is, is diesel. Go ahead, Matt. Uh, so I, I think one of these things goes into just technology in general in as much as we had a really exciting rollout with Enerlite, which is our direct emulsion system. And when you roll out a new technology, you need to think ahead of what else can I do with it? What else, what else will this need if, you know, I, my base case application works great, but guess what? People are going to try and use it for other things you didn't think about. Um, there could be other, you know, opportunities. And so, you know, we sort of scribbled down a few things that we thought we might need. Um, you know, one of the things that we came up with was a product called Enerlube Light, which is a lubricant for our direct emulsion system. Because we knew some folks would want to drill into the horizontal, um, might have some torque issues, and, you know, just say, look, if, if we can if we don't have to displace to oil-based mud and we drill a short lateral with this and, and still get lubricity, we'll go for it. Um, so that lubricant, for example, was ideal for that when most conventional lubricants actually fight the surfactant and, you know, break the direct emulsion. This was a compatible one that, that performed really well. Um, so that was kind of one other product. But then if you consider some of the other things, we said, well, what if I could get my oil back? Or what if I could um, find some way to get the solids out? And so that was sort of the, the challenge put before the lab um, was, can you find uh, some of those things? And I, I mean, th this is a bit more personal to me just because um, I, you know, I, I was involved in a patent a while ago where it was an all-oil system, and the problem was 100% oil was just too expensive. But we found a way to you know, recover the system, and of course, the economics were great. I thought, well, if, if we could do something like that in a, with an emulsion, um, maybe that would be the ticket. Um, I think what you'll find as we go through this is once you find out that you can really clean up the mud, maybe you don't need to mess with that. But um, uh, with respect to, you know, the overall all scope of, of concepts, Andrew, maybe you could just kind of take us through what did, what was the design team sort of given um, as far as their, their parameters of, hey, it needs to do this or this, and it, it won't make any sense if it does this. Yeah, so some of the design uh, requirements that were established before any of the testing was conducted was that this treatment should not irreversibly destabilize the direct emulsion system while drilling. Uh, you don't want to compromise the emulsion. You wouldn't want to do that for a number of reasons, uh, mainly wellbore stability. Um, so also, the treatment should not contaminate the oil phase which would prevent it from reuse. Uh, this treatment process needed to occur at the rig site. Um, so at the rig site, rather than offline, uh, 
due to logistic and cost reasons, we didn't want to truck this mud to a, a warehouse or mud plant to perform this. Uh, the process needed to leverage existing equipment found on most rigs. So we didn't want operators to have to go out and buy a bunch of new equipment to be able to do this. And last, uh, the treatment needed to consistently save money. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, one of the things that, that was interesting, and um, Andrew was, was out on a rig in West Texas somewhere, I assume, when we were, when we were working through this phase. But uh, um, we, we looked at a lot of the typical kind of off-the-shelf stuff. Um, and what we found is it was really hard to meet that requirement of not destabilizing uh, the system, even the stuff that looked pretty promising, we either go into the oil or over treatment created huge risks with, okay, you, you know, helped remove some solids, but now I'm going to spend thousands of dollars on emulsifier to, you know, get, get the system back into shape. Um, and so there were, there was just a lot to go through, um, iteratively. Uh, I, I mean, we didn't even have a, you know, a test process. And, um, so I think, um, Andrew, why don't you describe, um, you know, as far as what did, what did the lab have to do to come up with a test method and, and how did they know that their test method worked? So first we needed to decide what we were going to be testing as far as which fluids to test. Uh, we decided on testing fresh lab-built fluid as well as previously used field mud. Uh, that was because those two muds have different shear histories and can cause uh, the fluid to behave differently. So we wanted to encompass a broad enough range of fluids that would give us uh, the best results we could get there. Um, we separated the testing phases into a solids removal phase and the liquid separation phase. Um, as far as the test procedure, most methods involved uh, iterative guess and check and bottle testing, and eventually we were able to uh, establish some, some front runners. Andrew, can you talk a little bit about maybe about some of the challenge and sort of the expectations going into it and say, you know, this is probably what's going to work, and then all of a sudden something worked, and then maybe it didn't and how you kind of had to shift. Was, was there any sort of like um, moments where it was like, Oh no, we ran up against something like dead end. And what do we have to do? Or did, you know, the, the, the pre-planning stage and everything go according to plan? Cause I think a lot of that happens is you have an idea and you think chemistry might work and then you run up against something and all of a sudden, boom, it didn't work. And without getting into the details, but did you guys have to really pivot the way you guys navigated the testing stuff or did everything kind of go to as planned? Tell us how many chemicals you got to test. <laughs> A lot. <laughs> okay. Well, at least a hundred, right? Easily. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. I mean, the, this was not, and and it was one of those you'd think something was working, but it emulsions are tricky. Um, yeah. I mean, that's that's the easiest way to put it. But just, I mean, Andrew, talk about like how frustrating was that going through everything you had to try? It was a lot of testing. Um, I think one of the challenges was trying to make sure that what we were doing would translate to, to the field application. Um, so as far as uh, centrifuge rates in the lab compared to in the field, residency times, um, I mentioned the centrifuge rates, which would be RPM, 
which translates to G-Force, um, just trying to come up with a solution that made sense both in the lab and in the field. Screening over 100 chemicals. Yeah, it was, it was just a lot of work and sort of one of those where you, you get around to where you say, I really thought this was possible, but I'm not. I, I'm starting to wonder how much how much I need to put into this. But we did. We were able to screen it down, and um, uh, you know, one of the one of the cool things. Another thing I love about working for AES is, um, you know, our boss is someone who, when you're talking about new technology, and you say, "Hey, I need something to prove this out," is you know, "Why are you asking me? Just go do it." Um, and so we were able to do a yard test pretty quickly, uh, where we, the, the weird thing about yard tests is normally something happens that you didn't expect when you scale up to, you know, something larger than a little lab mixer. And this one, we pretty much got the same properties as to what we expected, uh, which was sort of w- like in a way like, wow, that doesn't normally happen. And, in a, which may have probably built our confidence a little bit more than, um, than we than it should have i guess right. but then the the converse side of that was um it it was like okay we're on to something here um and so you know we processed those and and it was pretty easy to get the first field trial once we had the data um and andrew why don't i mean this is this is much more your wheelhouse is is um tell us all about uh just field trials what was observed or, or learned from those and, and um, you know, on, on the higher level, and then we'll di- we can dig a little deeper. So we had a total of three field trials after the yard test. Uh, for each, a solids control expert would head out uh, in conjunction with a specialist, usually a tech services, myself, I guess. Um, but we would go out and screen the existing solids control equipment make sure that everything could be set up and function correctly. And then once drilling uh, started, we would start drilling out uh, the intermediate interval, and then it was just kind of ripping from there. Uh, We would typically wait uh, a few circulations to start building up some low-gravity solids if it was a fresh fluid. And then if we were seeing uh, a spike in mud weight, we would just start processing. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, going to location, you know, being the new guy and deploying new technology? Was it a little bit of a culture shift and was there a lot of educating or was everyone out there pretty accepting as to what you guys were doing? Talk a little bit about that because I think that's one thing that people are always curious about. You go out there and, you know, you're an unfamiliar face and you're running around with a clipboard or something, you know, collecting data and you're on the pits here, there and everywhere with your bright, shiny white hard hat. Do you, do you have any kind of moments of what am I doing here? But, but then ultimately ended up happening where, you know, whether it was the company man or someone out on location, uh, you know, had a change of heart. Were there anything, any learnings or takeaways that you had from, from that perspective? Uh, really, I think uh, everyone was hospitable, very professional. They were focused on getting the job done. I think they were excited to see this new technology or this new process in operation. So really, I didn't see or feel uh, any anything like that. No, that, and that's good. And I think that goes back to, you know, 
building strategic relationships with our customers, um, building that trust and, and having them invite, you know, different people onto location and work with us uh, because ultimately our visions and goals are aligned. And, and, you know, especially in the field, sometimes if they've been doing things for, you know, several years and all of a sudden it's, it's certainly uh, change is a bit uncomfortable. So it's neat to hear that we didn't run into any, you know, cultural uh, challenges and it seemed like everyone was working together, working hard and, and made it a success, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, a big part of this was working together with the solid control providers to, to operate or apply this process. And uh, a big factor of the success of this process was to be able to teach the solid control personnel how to run this because the goal was for us to teach them and then they could run it themselves. Mm -hmm. So out of the box, I mean, when you go to the field, it sounds like everything went really well, but you know, in hindsight, what were some of the challenges that happened? I mean, it sounds like there was, or from what my understanding, there was more than just one trial. Can you speak about sort of the transition from one to the next and maybe some lessons learned or conclusions that, uh, that you were drawn from those initial trials? Yeah, the first field trial, we had some pretty good takeaways. Uh, the biggest challenge we saw was inconsistent feed rate from the centrifugal pump to the centrifuge. So that led us to uh, utilize positive displacement pumps in the future. And those helped a lot as far as feed rate to the centrifuge and consistent rates, which help with getting a more consistent treatment. And I think. Uh uh Andrew that that was probably one of the biggest sort of takeaways that required customers to have to maybe change their rig up and and that sort of thing um but can you talk more were you treating all the time or or was it one of those you'd kind of treat and then go to bed for a little while or, or and you could just kind of come back to it as you accumulated more solids or or what what were you seeing we were seeing that we did not need to treat all the time. It was typically whenever we needed to cut mud weight quickly or we just needed to bring mud weight down. So basically, instead of adding diesel, say, go do the treatment, we're going to pull these solids out. Yeah, so, and I think, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the oil saving side, that was just an interesting, you know, trying to ta- track your diesel additions, uh, for example, when you've got it's provided by the rig. I mean, we track it anyways, but we're obviously not selling it. Um, and, you know, sometimes you're building volume because you need volume. Other times you're adding oil. Um, and so we, we had to get pretty good at separating those things out and kind of training everybody that, hey, there's there's an end game in this. Please track how much your diesel additions are lowered, for example. Um, could you talk more about just um, what you found when you started drilling, let's say we use the system for an entire well, what did you see as far as the condition of the mud at the beginning of the well relative to the end of the well kind of versus untreated? So while we were treating, I saw that oil water ratios were maintained, uh, within plus or minus 3%. For instance, if we drilled out with a 2575, you would TD the interval with like a 2773 
they would remain somewhat constant. Um, on the second and third field trial, both fluids ended with uh, very low, I think less than 3% low gravity solids, which is low. And it kind of sets you up for reuse of the fluid of the fluid as it's still in pretty good condition. And I think that's kind of, um, you know, without jumping too far into some of the conclusions, which I think we're, we're about to get into, um, I just wanted to add, you know, so we looked at, uh, there, we had a couple of these where afterwards we would try and break some of the fluid and recover the oil and, and that sort of thing. But um, that original concept was when we had 50%, 60%, or, you know, by volume oil, where there was a lot of oil to get back and a lot of money to be had. But when you're running 2575, you start with that and you finish with that and the mud is already clean and doesn't need to be, and this fluid can be stored for months and months without any issue. Um, it really challenged that original concept, which I thought was going to be like our big home run. Um, so I, I just wanted to add that. That was a bit of a surprise. Um, but uh, Andrew, why don't you talk about where we're at, you know, on the on the economics what we're seeing now i mean uh, you know are we doing this on every job now and and you know what is our relative benefit so we're still currently uh using the process in the field uh i'd say an average cost savings is about $25,000 uh looking at diesel consumption compared to wells that were drilled uh without this treatment process um the, the wells drilled with the treatment process are falling in the 30th percentile for diesel consumption. Yeah, so it's it's a dramatic reduction um, and uh, something I, I don't even know our well count anymore. I used to keep track of this. I think when the paper was written, we said 30. Um, but it's, it's pretty much kind of now the standard package. If you're going to do direct emulsion, we... You've probably heard the numbers and would say, well, it seems to make sense to use... We call this... Uh, this we call it a service, Enerlite Recover. Um, the reason we call it a service is just it's not a specific product necessarily. It's how you apply it along with a, you know, a product, product options and that sort of thing. So um, anyways, but I know, you know, Justin, you've rolled this out with a couple of your customers. What, what's been your impression as far as introducing it to them? Sure. And that sort of thing. Yeah, no, it's been an interesting transition. And certainly um, what we do as a company by educating our customers um, and really helping them feel comfortable um, with a lot of the data that we've collected and, and case studies that we've built to to quantify the value that we're trying to offer. And so um, because of what we've done internally with, with your team, it, it's been I wouldn't say easy, but as an account manager to help deploy this type of technology, it's certainly it's a, it's a easy to get over that hurdle of them saying, "Okay, cool, let's try it." Um, you know, the, the actual the the pre planning I think is where uh, certainly this whole thing starts off because it's it's the, the chemistry isn't crazy here. Um, like we've discussed, you know, it's it, it has a pretty in depth history and and a lot of drilling engineers who've been around for a while have heard of this system. But what it comes down to is execution. And and so um, you know, like Andrew mentioned, a lot of the field trials or initially the field trials, we found out that, you know, proper pumps and different setups, that was all stuff that we had to learn. And 
in fact, I remember it was, you know, it was a, it was a long weekend and, um, you know, there were some things going on and, and, you know, I ended up flying out to Midland and going to the rig just so I could see, you know, how it was set up and to, to make sure that everything was functioning properly. Um, but a lot of the, uh, a lot of the challenges are, are, can easily be met by just proper planning and execution. And so, uh, the technology has been good. Uh, certainly the amount of um, diesel and dilution that can be saved through proper application of the technology that's mentioned in the paper um, has, has certainly been realized. I mean, the numbers don't lie. And at the end of the day right now, especially with the environment that we're in, um, everything counts. And so continuing to enhance technology and not just be satisfied with the status quo, I think is what a lot of our customers are continuing to be impressed by. Uh, just continuing to push the limits, but uh, it, it's it's been a great experience. But but like any technology, it has its limitations. Um, making sure that we're we're applying it for the right reasons. Yeah. And so I think that's where uh, there's a fine line. It's well, this is cool in this area. Well, why don't we try it in this? And well, can it do that? And it's like, well, you know, it, it's kind of a niche niche application. And so we don't want to outsell ourselves here, and we certainly don't want to provide a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Uh, so really making sure that, that there's expectation, the expectations are met and, and that people understand, you know, what it's truly meant to do. And so, but it, but it certainly has added a lot of value and is, and not only helped our customers, but as an industry helped keep people keep drilling because of the savings they've seen through this type of, uh, drilling fluid system. Yeah. And no, it's interesting how much technology shifts, like part of the, part of the, or, or, the, the ground game shifts, honestly, because part of the confrontation we had originally was, look, of course, we don't want to use as much oil. But the problem is our truck drivers are getting a mad trucking oil around. Like we're, we're having issues with our relationships with our diesel supplier um, just because we're using so much more volume of diesel to build this mud at the rig. And anything you can do to help would be looked on favorably. Of course. And um, and not only just from the cost, I mean, it all ties into cost, but from an HSE perspective, less diesel used, less trucks on the road, you know, helping, uh, you know, people avoid having to have so much traffic all the time. And in West Texas, it's, it's notorious. So it's not just directly what's happening on the rig. There's certainly a trickle effect whenever you can help reduce the amount of diesel or, or chemicals or anything being added. If, if you can take trucks off the road, that, that is always something that's highly valued within any organization. Yeah. And, I, and, and the goal of the paper, I mean, obviously, you know, we want to tell the story of a great, you know, great offering we think we have. Um, but I think, you know, w when you talk about how you educate and impact the industry, it's a story of deploying a technology. It's a story of some of the surprises where we thought the economics would be better in one way and found out that, no, it was, it was actually better in another. Um, but, uh, you know, Andrew, this was actually your first paper to get to write. And so I'm curious what your takeaways were through the process of looking up reference papers and and doing the whole study of trying to put something like this together what did did you learn anything from just being dragged through all of that yeah of course i think that it was a really good exercise uh in learning about some of the more technical aspects of this treatment and process i think that i really had to be a little more organized with uh, some of the the literature that I was going through. Um, 
as far as the first paper that I was able to be a part of, I, I think that it was a really great experience. And so you think a lot of people could contribute an industry paper someday. Isn't that right, Andrew? Matt is winking at me. That's a yes. <laughs> I just it's not as scary as it seems. My goal, my goal for the AD <laughs> Fluids Conference, which got canceled on me, was to get all these new people involved in getting to write and contribute. And at the very least, they got, you know, they got to be a part of, of writing a paper. Um, yeah. and you're gonna get to meet all of the, the guys who are gonna get a chance to present. But um I just think, uh, you know, there are papers that are written for different reasons and sometimes they are, but like the process can be very educational. It can really grow you as a professional. And of course you get, you know, on LinkedIn or whatever, you can <laughs> yeah. pad your stats with you've been a published author. Um, the, it, it's just the first one is so scary. And so if you can find somebody to, um, I, I use the word navigate, although Andrew was forced um, but, uh, you know, somebody to just kind of guide you and, and say, it's not that scary. I, I hope that, um, people are more enthusiastic about, um, you know, sharing knowledge and, and just contributing to the industry. Um, even if it's a concept, even if it's not, I've got a new technology to brag about, but, um, we tested some things and some interesting things happened and here's what we did. Yeah. So no, and Andrew, I'm really glad that you were voluntold to do this. I think your initiative speaks for itself, but in all honesty, it's uh, it, it takes a lot of work. And, and again, I applaud our team for, you know, Matt allowing uh, folks to get involved with this kind of thing. Cause I think a lot of different companies, um, you know, and, and I'm saying this not because it means much, but I've never been able to be a part of something like this. And so uh, it, it's a great experience for yourself and hopefully you've learned from it and, and you can use those uh, lessons that you've learned and apply it to, to other papers um now that you're a professional podcaster i think hollywood's the next uh the next step what do you think i don't know about that justin <laughs> oh my gosh though you gotta see the so you gotta check out his tech tips or watch our micro strength video this guy is like a he's a graphic designer at heart like yeah he he did most of that the like animations and everything yeah and people are like oh how'd you get those and i'm like andrew just did them and they're like you didn't pay somebody like we don't have money for that. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> You're so techy, Andrew. It's awesome. It's, it's that millennial blood in you. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> right. Well, uh, you know, I don't have any other questions. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. You did a great job. Matt, you got any closing last words? I just wanted to share one other really fun thing about working with Andrew is, so this guy, he, he graduated from college and came and joined AES. You know, didn't have any other experience in the industry per se. Um, and he's worked with guys like Ricky and myself who've worked for some really large companies. You know, Ricky's worked for a couple of really large companies and he's just like, man, you guys are like mental train wrecks sometimes. Like you, you guys are, are like shell shocked by all these experiences and we're like, you just have no idea how thankful you should be to be working at AES. <laughs> um, and so we're really glad Andrew didn't have to go through all of that to find what a great place AES is. There you go. And at the same time, I just, it, it, it's, it's just always so entertaining to me because, um, he's got kind of the nuts and bolts of, of somebody who could, who could do really well anywhere, but we're fortunate enough to have him. So awesome. Well, if anyone out there wants to reach out, just to ask maybe some questions, are you on LinkedIn or what would be the best way to reach out, man? Yes, I am on LinkedIn. That'd be okay. a great platform to reach out okay. to me at. Yeah, perfect. Well, we'll put uh, uh, Andrew Hewitt. We'll make sure your name is obviously in the show notes there. And uh, for all the listeners out there, we always uh, certainly appreciate the support. If you'd like to continue to support the show, please 
uh, subscribe, share it, like it, and leave a five-star review. That certainly helps everything that we're doing in our initiatives here. If you have any questions, you can hit Matt or I on LinkedIn. Um, please visit the YouTube channel for all our tech tips. We've got a pretty good library there as well. Um, we are also on We've got our Facebook group and we've also got a Twitter page. So uh, we're making a big push to, to make sure to, to tell the AES story and to share all the valuable information that we're putting together here at our company. And with that being said, that's a wrap. Thanks, everybody. Everybody take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.